In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, our gospel text came from this exact chapter, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. At the very beginning of that chapter, we had a long list of important people. There were kings and governors, tetrarchs and high priests. and All of them were listed in meticulous detail. When you see this many people and places all mentioned in rapid succession, you should get a very real sense that things in Israel are very, very complicated. Israel had a long, long history. Their collective memories were so long, in fact, that by the time John the Baptist even steps onto the scene, Israel had already logged some 2,000 years in the land. During that time, Israel experienced many highs and lows, times of plenty and times of little. But few things in their long history had shaped Israel's collective psyche more than their history of being invaded and occupied. In the centuries leading up to the New Testament, no fewer than six different nations had invaded and occupied Israel. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, all forced themselves into the land. After the rise and fall of those nations, the Seleucid and the Ptolemy Empire, they played a centuries-long game of -of tug-of-war, with Israel acting as the rope. And when those two empires finally fell, when it looked like Israel had outlasted all of its enemies, just when it looked like Israel would be free from foreign oppression, in walked the Roman Empire. This long and sordid history of Israel, of successive invasions and occupations, had made the time of John the Baptist a confused mess of allegiances and enemies. Centuries of warfare and struggle had formed Israel into a boiling cauldron of political ambition and greed. In that malaise, politicians sought not the good of the people, but above all things, they sought their own power and security. And if the people had to suffer in their pursuit for this power, then so be it. By the way, does that sound familiar at all? But what made this mess in Israel even messier was that the religious leaders seemed to play the exact same game. Sure, their quest for power was a bit more subtle than the average politicians, but make no mistake, most of the religious elite in Israel did not care for the people. They did not care about pursuing God. Most of the religious elite in Israel said they worshipped the one true God of Israel. But if that were true, if they really were seeking after God, then how in the world could they have looked Jesus in his eyes and called him a sinner? Those who were supposed to lead the people of Israel in the worship of God instead demonized God and they perverted his truth. The religious leaders who were supposed to act as shepherds, instead they acted as wolves. By the way, does that sound familiar? And it's into this mess of ambition and lies and savagery and frustrations that John the Baptist cries out in the wilderness. The day of the Lord is coming. It was almost upon them. His arrival was imminent. And John implores the people to prepare themselves. He leads them to, he, he leads them to be ready, to ready themselves to repent and to be baptized. What I want to do with you this morning is to trace that exact message of John. I want us to see how John's message is received, how many in Israel hear it, and they heed the word of John, and they repent. 
But I also want us to see that there are those who hear the same message, who hear the exact same words, and they respond to John not with repentance, but with vengeance. And once we have those two threads of the story in place, I want us to turn and look at our world. I want us to turn and look at our cities and our homes, and I want us to ask the same question many in Israel asked John. What do we do? So if you have not yet, take your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Let's dive into the story. Excuse me. In the first few verses of our gospel text, John says something to Israel that's very, very interesting. Look, starting in verse 8. It reads, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now, if you're like me, the very first time I read that verse, I had no idea what John was talking about. Something about fruits and stones and Abraham. But other than that, I had no idea what was going on. But if you take another look, if you take it piece by piece, look at the first sentence of verse 8. What's it say? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That seems pretty straightforward, right? John says that if you are repentant, if in your heart you have repented of your sin before the Lord, then there should be some outward sign of that inward repentance. Now, it's true, your spiritual repentance may be invisible to the world. The cry of a sinner to be forgiven may be something that no one else sees or hears except God alone. But, and this is John's main point, Your inward repentance may be invisible to the world, but the fruit born out of that repentant heart should be clear for everyone to see. Others should be able to see and hear the fruits of your repentance, your actions, your speech. The fruits produced from your repentant heart should be on display for everyone in the world to see. And that fruit the fruit produced by God's grace in you should be as obvious to the world as a vine filled with berries or a tree in full bloom. Your repentance should be that obvious. But later in the same verse, John seems to anticipate that the crowd is going to try to make a caveat for themselves, it seems. He seems to know them well enough that he anticipates their response. According to John, the response the people are going to call for 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 this repentance and bearing of good good fruit was going to be something like this. We hear you, John. Repentance, good fruit, all of that. But John, you seem to have forgotten, buddy, we have Abraham as our father, so I'm not sure this message is really for us. Might be someone over there you're looking for. Now, if you're like me, the very first time I read that verse, I had no idea what the people were talking about. What in the world does Abraham have to do with these people repenting of their sin? Well, here's basically what's going on with the whole, the whole Abraham thing. You see, many in Israel believe that what God had done was marked Israel as his own. What you could rely on as an evidence of your good standing with God was that your line could be traced back to Abraham himself. And for those who descended from Abraham, they could rest easy that they were in the good graces of God. And on the surface, that kind of seems plausible. God did call Abraham and mark him out as special. God did promise Abraham that the whole world would be blessed through his descendants. 
God did refer to Israel as his own chosen people. So if you're in that line of Abraham, if you are a true Israelite, then you might be good to go, right? But John responds to that line of thinking with this. John says in the the Bubba version, you think being in the line of Abraham makes you that special? You think being a child of Abraham makes you that special? Man, if God wanted to, he could make Abraham some kid out of them rocks over there. You're not that special. Being the children of Abraham did not automatically grant Israel salvation. Being the people of God did not mean they ceased to have need of repentance. No, as a matter of fact, if they wanted to act like children of Abraham, if they truly were God's people, then they should have been the very first ones to repent. They should have been the very first ones who cried out for forgiveness and began living lives of redeemed people. They should have been the first people who, being freed from their sin and guilt, then acted that forgiveness out in the world, forgiving others' sins, just as theirs had been forgiven. The people who were like that, those people were going to be like trees that bore much fruit. Those who rested on their laurels of their lineage, those who did not repent of their sins, were like trees that produced nothing. And these barren, fruitless trees were now on notice, because as John says in verse 9, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Playtime in Israel was over. The Lord was on his way, and what he required of every single person, Jew and Gentile alike, was repent and then bear the fruits in keeping with your repentance. That message of John is the message the church still proclaims today. 2,000 years later, the church of Jesus Christ has not stopped announcing that the Lord is coming soon, that he calls all mankind to repent of their sins and then live lives that are holy and blameless, to live lives of redemption and hope, to live lives that bear good fruit. But guys, if we aren't careful, if the Christian fails to ask the Lord to examine their hearts, to root out sin in our own lives wherever it may be found, if we fail to do that, then we run the risk of thinking and acting just like these Israelites did. Just like Israel will walk through our days thinking our repentance is optional, that the real problems of the world are somewhere out there. If we aren't careful, we'll begin to think that repentance should take place everywhere in the whole world except for in our own hearts. But guys, if we are the people of God we proclaim to be, then shouldn't we be the very first ones on our knees? Shouldn't we be the very first people willing to repent? Shouldn't we be so tender to the leading of the Lord and to the conviction of sin that we live lives of constant repentance? The church of Jesus Christ should be the last people in the whole entire world that thinks repentance is someone else's responsibility. No. So how do the people respond to John and his call for repentance? Well, from what we can tell, the people respond, thankfully, by repenting. They take the next step as well, and they ask John this question. Man, John, okay, fine, we, we, we want to repent. What do we do? What does it need to look like, John? And in verse 10, the people ask John this question, 
and he gives them some great answers. John responds with some practical examples. For those who have much, share with those who have little. You got two jackets and more food than you can eat, then share it with those that are cold and hungry. This is pretty simple. That's a good start. Hey, tax collectors, stop lining your pockets with the extorted money of your neighbors. Soldiers, you're supposed to be protecting people. Quit abusing them. These are all great starts for you. And all of this sounded great to the people. It sounded so great, in fact, that the people began to ask themselves a question. Look in verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. The people were convinced that John was speaking the truth of God. They were convinced of their, convicted of their sin and wanted to live different lives. They knew the Messiah was coming. They knew that any day now the Messiah would show up and he would say and do a lot of the same exact things that John was doing. So was John the guy? Was it possible that John was the Messiah? These were the questions that he had going through their heads. Now, you and I know the answer to that. John was not the Messiah. And John goes on to make that very clear to people, to the people in verses 16 and 17. He wasn't Israel's Messiah. The Messiah was still yet to come. But the actions of John, the words he used were so close to what the Messiah would say and do that asking about his connection to the Messiah was at least a valid question. It was unmistakable. John was connected to God's Messiah somehow. The people just didn't know how. And I wonder, I wonder how often something like that happens for me, for the Christian. How often are people able to tell that we are connected to and associated with the Messiah? How often are people watching us and listening to us and then think to themselves, hey, there's something different there. There's a quality to how they live, how they love one another. And that quality, it stands in stark contrast to everything else I see in the world. I wonder how often that happens to us. How often do people suspect us of having a connection to the Messiah? I don't know that answer. Maybe I'm sounding more negative than I want to, but guys, I'm willing to bet it doesn't happen nearly as often as it should. A hunch is one of the reasons the world often doesn't notice us as persons connected to the Messiah. One of the reasons the world doesn't see good fruit produced in our lives has a lot to do with the unrepentant sins in our own hearts. Christians full of unrepentant sin, churches full of unrepentant believers have absolutely nothing to offer the world. Nothing. Even if by some miracle an unrepentant non-believer wanders into a church like that, a dead church full of sin, they wouldn't see anyone repenting of it. They wouldn't see anyone examining themselves and taking their own personal sins seriously. So why should they? whether it's an individual believer or an entire church, if the responsibility for repentance is outsourced to someone else's job, then you end up with the people that are disgusted with the world's sinfulness and filth, yet they're utterly blind to their own. If we're going to show the world the beauty of Christ, then we must lead by example. And step one, guys, is repenting of our own sin. <clears throat> 
Now, I know I don't need to tell you that can be hard. Facing your own sin is very, very difficult, but what you may not know is that facing your own sin and by God's grace, repenting of it, can also be very dangerous. Maybe you've never thought of repentance as dangerous, but look again at the closing verses of our gospel text. Verse 19. It reads, But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him from Her- for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. John's repentance and his call for others to follow suit and prepare themselves for the coming of the Lord had led him into direct conflict with Herod. The good fruit that John was bearing in the world was contrasted with the deadness of Herod. And this contrast between he and John made Herod even more unwilling to repent, even more unwilling to face his sins and ask for forgiveness. Instead, the goodness that was shown in John became the very motivation for Herod to lash out at him. Herod was unwilling to be held responsible for his sin, and so what he did was made John responsible for it. He locked him up. And this is something that the repentant and redeemed Christian can never forget. This world has no shortage of Herods. There is no shortage of people who will use your connection to the Messiah as the very basis upon which they don't like you. Your connection to Jesus will be the very reason some people hate you. There are those in this world that will hate you and seek your destruction because they see the life of God producing good fruit in you. And being unwilling to repent themselves, they stead indict you. But guys, this is the exact struggle and reality that every single Christian signs up for. If we do what John asks of Israel, if we do what Christ still asks of us, if we repent of our sins and we live lives that produce good fruit, then we will be like a beacon in the darkness. The church will be like a city on a hill, beckoning everyone trapped in darkness to come to Christ and to be freed from sin and death. And that message of hope and forgiveness will be as living waters to some people. But make no mistake, that exact same message of hope and forgiveness will fuel the rage of those unwilling to repent and call Christ Lord. Jesus has promised us as much. So what do we do this morning? Do we hear the word of the Lord and respond by repenting? Or do we defer that to someone else? Do we make repentance something other people need to do? Or do we ask the Lord to search our hearts and convict us of our sin and get serious about this Christian life? It's my prayer that we do. It's my prayer that as the days of this world grow ever shorter, as the days grow even more dark and contentious, that the church always remembers repentance begins with us. That the bearing of good fruit is a sure sign of true repentance and that there will be those who see your repentance, who see the good fruit produced in your life and by the Spirit, it will draw them to the Lord. This message of hope, of forgiveness and redemption is the only hope of the world, guys. 
and the Christian must be the very first person willing to act it out in their own lives. But will we? Will we respond to what the Lord is calling us to do and for the sake of the world and to the glory of God, will we repent as well? I pray we do. Amen.